one too? All right, well, look at that. We ended it with 10 seconds left. So, wow. Youth group. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, oh, Aaron, let's wait on you. I'll let you sit down, thank you. Um, so, lost uh, things. Any great stories out there? Somebody want to stand up and share a story from somebody that they just talked to? Maybe just maybe we'll just take one. Yeah, Cheryl. And you didn't divorce him. Okay. Well done. That's a really good segue, Cheryl. So I was going to, no, I'm not, I was just one. See, you didn't stand up first, so then I can't take you now. Sorry. I, uh, so I, I play softball. Um, I'm terrible. Anyone who's played softball with me knows I'm the worst player on the field. I just, I can pitch, so then I find my way onto these teams. And so playing softball a couple years ago, um, uh, I put my glove on, and I had had my ring on. And um, I just lost some weight, like 10, 15 pounds, because every summer I kind of shed the, you know, winter fat. You know, that's just the thing that happens in my life. I don't know if anyone else is like that. So I was coming from the mound, and I pulled my glove off, and I realized like an inning or two later that I had lost my ring, that it was gone. And uh, so I did what you would do, right? I didn't want to go home and tell my wife that I lost my ring. That would be a terrible decision. And so I had everybody on the field at the end of the game sweep the field with me. We like did a grid pattern and we all like took a step and like we were, it's almost like we were like searching the woods for someone, you know, who was lost, right? So we did this thing and we looked all through the infield and I never left the infield. So we knew it was in the, somewhere in that area. Um, that would have been too much running to run to the outfield. Uh, but I went home kind of discouraged. I'd spent like an hour searching for this wedding ring and didn't want to tell my wife about that. So then I did what anyone would do. Instead of telling my wife, hey, I lost my wedding ring, I decided no matter what, I was going to find this ring and just not tell her um, because that would hurt my marriage. And so the next day I went to my friend who has, you know, you have a friend who has like weird stuff. So I went to my friend who has weird stuff and I said, hey, do you have a metal detector? And he was like, yeah, actually I do have a metal detector. Picked it up at an estate sale or something last week. Hold on, here you go. And he pulls it out of his garage and I throw it in my car, and I drive down to the, the ball field, and I swept, you know, I felt like one of those guys on the beach, you know, whatever, looking for rings or whatever, swept the entire infield and found it buried in the dirt between the mound and the dugout, exactly where I thought it was going to be. Um, it had been stepped on probably two or three times. You couldn't see it. It was like in the dirt. So no, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Okay, so Jesus, one of the cool things is he is paying attention to what's going on all around him. So he's sitting there talking with some people. By the way, sinners and tax collectors were drawn to him. Everyone is drawn to Jesus, right? And then there were still people standing on the outside being like, well, he shouldn't be hanging out with these people. What does this say about him? And knowing that they were muttering this or having this conversation on the side or kind of judging what was going on, he decides to tell them this parable. So he's directly communicating this parable so that he can uh, really run straight up against the idea that there's two classes of people. There's sinners and non-sinners. There's saved people and non-saved people. He's saying, look, everybody has stuff. Everybody's welcome to be part of, you know, my kingdom. And I'm going to have a relationship with all of these people. Now, he didn't 
exactly always accept them in the way that we use that terminology today. He turned them back towards where God wanted them to go. And he often guided them into a relationship with God that would probably change a whole lot about their life. There's a lot of people that walk in with a, with a preconceived idea of who I am, and then they meet Jesus, and then they're disarmed, and that identity that they walked in with goes away. Right? You think, I'm going to define myself in this way, and then you meet Jesus, and you realize there's a whole other way that you need to be defined as someone who's a dearly loved child of God. And so we don't try to fix that until you actually know Jesus. We want you to know Jesus first. So he says, he told him this parable. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So he tells a story that they would have been familiar with. A shepherd who has a hundred sheep. That's a pretty rich shepherd, by the way. A hundred sheep is a pretty good number. And sheep... Uh, you know, that I don't, look, I, I, I'm going to be honest, this is not from personal experience. I have never tried to move animals from one place to another. I assume it's very difficult to do. I saw a video on YouTube a couple weeks ago of like a bunch of cows that got loose and then were running down a, a street in a town because the ranchers had not moved them correctly from one pen to the other. I imagine it's very difficult. From what I have read about sheep is that they listen to the voice of the person that is guiding them. In fact, you could have two groups of sheep kind of merge into one and the shepherd will call out for his sheep and his sheep will move and follow him. So they know the voice of their shepherd. And so Jesus tells a story. He says, so if you have a hundred sheep, you leave the 99 and you go after the one. He says, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who do not repent. And he, think about how the people listening heard this story. Okay? I think the Pharisees probably liked that last sentence. Pharisees are, you know trying to find themselves in the story, and the sinners and tax collectors are finding themselves in the story. And the sinners and tax collectors, they know who they are. They're like, yeah, I wandered off a long time ago, and I felt isolated from the community for a very long time, and I haven't been connected, and I don't know anyone, and I don't feel like there's a way for me to get back. The only way I'm getting back is if Jesus comes and takes me and throws me over his shoulders and drags me back into community. That's it. That's the only way it's going to happen. And the... the um, Pharisees are looking at this, the religious people, and they're like, yeah, we're the 99, right? We're the ones who don't need to repent. Okay, now that's a really tricky phrase, don't need to repent. Like, I want you to understand all the sheep belong to the shepherd, and he cares about all the sheep. But some of us wander off. Some of us wander off, we don't we just walk away from the church. We walk away from the community. We walk away from people who love us, who care about us, who want the best from us. Maybe we had a bad experience in a church. Maybe we didn't get connected or we had a hard time finding the right place to get connected. And we found ourselves just kind of like wanting community, wanting to be connected, but we just haven't quite found the right place to do it. That's a very common thing nowadays. He's saying, I have this group of people. They're together, right? I'm going to guide them into a new life. Right? So Jesus calls himself the gate, and the shepherd. He uses all these phrases. He's going to guide these people to the right place. But when one wanders off, we run after that person. Okay? When one of you wanders off, we're going to run after you. We're not going to let you uh, disconnect yourself from community and be gone. We're going to come back and say, look, come, 
back and join us. We learn this from Jesus. And I want you to know these two groups of people both saw themselves in the story. So, so far, the religious people are feeling pretty good about being called the ones who don't need to repent. They do need to repent, by the way. They aren't saved yet. But they're feeling like they're in a place where they're connected. And Jesus is going and grabbing people from far away and dragging them in. And saying that that's very important to him and should be very important to us. Okay? So look at verse 8. So he says, I'm going to keep going here. Just so in case you didn't get the story yet. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. She, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's looking into the eyes of sinners and saying, There is rejoicing that happens over one sinner who repents. He's saying, You are lost. You are a sinner. You're disconnected. But I want you to know that there's a party in heaven... But the angels throw a party when you decide to follow me. When you repent of your sin. When you start to turn from your ways and walk in the way that God has called you to. And again, the religious people are probably listening to this. And they're going, great. That sounds great. Let's get these sinners doing the right thing. Let's get them living correctly. This sounds really good to me. And they're still listening to the story. And they're still hearing it from a, a positive perspective. Yeah, great. Let's get these sinners worked out. Let's get them moving in the right direction. They're not thinking about who they are. And so then he tells one last story. Uh, Verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And at this point, you would have heard a gasp. (sighs) What? Okay. We look at things a little differently. Okay. If there's a father, for instance, now who has tons and tons of money, he'll set up a trust. He'll start funneling money for tax purposes to his children ahead of time. He'll start, you know, giving that away uh, in bits and pieces and gradually giving more over time so that when he passes, it'll be easy to transfer the wealth and the family to the next generation, right? There's, if you don't prepare for that stuff, you get crushed in taxes. So we think one way, we think one way. In their culture, if you had said this to your father, you essentially would have been saying, I wish you were dead. I would like what's coming to me now. That would have been a terrible son in their eyes. Basically the worst thing you could do to your father in that, in that uh, culture. Not like what we think about when we think about transferring your estate to the next generation. And so essentially he starts the story off by saying, look how bad... And again, the sinners are seeing themselves in this story. And they know, in a minute, they're about to know who they are in the story. And the Pharisees are probably sitting back and going, yeah, look how bad they are. Look at how bad they are. Okay? It's, he basically starts by making them the, um, the antagonist in the story. The one who's got the, uh, creating the problem. The one who's really bad in the story. Right? So he says he divided the property between them. Which, by the way, a dad wouldn't have done in that day and age. And definitely wouldn't have done to his younger son. He would have given him much less and probably nothing at all if he had asked for that. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So he did uh, exactly what would have gone with that first phrase. I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. And then he goes off and uses it to please himself, right? He goes off and uses it in wild living. He squanders everything he has. And basically finds himself living in another place destitute. 
It says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so you've, you have a, 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 a nice Jewish young man who moves to another country, who squanders all of his wealth that he's been given by his father in his wild living, and finds himself working for somebody from that country, feeding pigs. Now, this would have been something a Jewish person would not have wanted to do or be around. Pigs were unclean animals to them. So feeding pigs, looking at the food that they were eating, being in that would have been really wrong to him. It would have felt very, very wrong would have felt like a violation of who he was. So he finds himself at his lowest low point, and he's basically in need, feeding pigs, hiring himself out to somebody who is not one of his own people, and is basically at his lowest point. Verse 16 says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So in other words, he even considered eating the food that he was feeding to the pigs. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So at his lowest low point, he knows I can go back and I can be a servant in my father's kingdom my father's house, and there will be food for me to spare. I'll have extra. I'll be fine. And I'll live out the rest of my days as a servant in my father's house. And you know what? I've earned this. I've walked away from my father. I've basically told him I wish he was dead. I've squandered everything he gave me. And now I don't deserve anything. I'm just going to go and ask him if he can keep me alive by feeding me food that I, that I would actually want. That's essentially where he's at. And this phrase here, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, is actually not translated very well in this, in this uh, translation. And actually, what we should say is, I have sinned against God and in front of you. Okay, so there's two things to consider here. And this is the thing I think that dawned on the younger son, that in doing so, what he did, in taking the inheritance and going away to another land, in squandering it, in wild living, in, in basically using it, to fulfill the lusts that he had in his life. He knew he was wrong. And he knew that he had wronged his father and his whole family. But he also knew that actually the person that he had really sinned against, first and foremost, was God. He says, I have sinned against God and in front of you, is the way that that translates. In other words, I've sinned in your presence, Father. I've done the wrong thing and I've done it to you. But in reality, I understand that my sin, first and foremost hurts my relationship with God. And this is a big, big thing, a big aha. Sometimes we feel like the only person that we need to make right when we do something wrong is the person who we did it against. But in reality, when we sin, it breaks our relationship with God. And we first need to go and seek forgiveness in our relationship with God and also then work out all the issues that have come about because of our sin in our relationships with people. There's two things happening. There's a brokenness between us and God, and there's a brokenness between us and the people around us. And see those things. First and foremost, with God, and then secondly, with people. And, and, and in fact, I'm not sure we can always right the wrong with people, 
in general, and we can't always access the humility we need to go and throw ourselves down in front of people and, and seek forgiveness until we get right with God. So it's, it's in that order. So he says, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before my father and I'm no longer worthy to be called son, but I can be a hired servant. And so he says he got up and went to his father. And it says, while, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Now, I want you to think about what that means while he was still a long way off. And I think sometimes in my mind, what I see is, oh, here he comes over the, the hill. Maybe a mile or two away, I, I'm a, I, can, I have a nice vista. And then he's coming over the hill and now I see him. I think the father was keeping tabs on him. I think the father was paying attention to what was going on with him. The father never stopped caring about him, never stopped wanting him to come home, never stopped desiring to have their relationship restored. Even though he had rejected him and walked away from him, the father still wanted that relationship, kept the door open, kept tabs on his son. He let him go and do the sin that he wanted to do, but then still wanted, desired to have him back. Okay, so it says, while he was still a long way off, he saw him, he's filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him, which must have really disarmed the son. He, he had worked out the, 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 the conversation ahead in his mind. And maybe you've done that before. You have like a big conversation coming up with somebody, and you think ahead of time, okay, I'll say this, and then I'll say this, and then I'll say this, and you kind of work out what it's going to be like. Well, the father just throws it all into a... Like, it just messes him up from the first moment. Runs right up to him, throws his arms around him, and starts to, to kiss him. I'm like, that's a little weird. Like, if my dad came running up to me and just started, like, kissing me all over, I'd, I'd be like, okay, like, let's chill out for a second. Like, this is, a, like, I don't know what to say now. I'm a little bit off my game here. I had this all thought out. Now I'm not sure what to do. So it says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's like, I, 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 I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, it almost, when it says the father said to his servants there, the original language says, it's almost as if the father wasn't even listening, that he came running up around him, threw his arms around him, started kissing him, and started yelling to the servants, hey, bring the, bring the, and the son's like, but I just, I, must, I sinned again. The father just didn't, wasn't listening, just didn't care. Just basically didn't hear anything he said. And moved right on to what he wanted for him in that moment. Okay? And so it says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father was like, said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger. Put the sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. So he gives him... All of the things that restore him back to the family. Right? The ring, the sandals, the robe. It's basically saying you are 100% restored back to your position. Okay? And we know that somebody wasn't happy about this. Right? There was a, a time where I was teaching in a Sunday school class. And I said, okay. And so who wasn't happy that the son was back? And one of the kids said, the fatted calf. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but that's not the end of the story, right? Like that could be the end of the story and that'd be a great story because he's talking to sinners and, he, and he's talking to people who are disconnected and they are seeing themselves in the story and they're like, yeah, like I walked away from God and I walked away from community and I, 
I took my inheritance and I squandered it on things that I wanted to do and I gave into my own sin and I allowed myself to get so far away from my true identity that I found myself in a place where I was at my lowest point. And that was the moment where I finally had enough humility to come back and try to throw myself at the mercy of my father. And then he, he didn't want to hear it. He just wanted to receive me back as a dearly loved child of God. And the sinners, and they're seeing themselves in that, and they're like, this is, this is exactly what I need, Jesus. Accept me back. I'm ready to come back. I want to come home. I don't want to be living where I'm living. And that could have been in the story. It would have been a great story. But that wasn't the end of the story. Right? There's another part to it. So it says, meanwhile, right? there's like a nice little transition. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And he says, your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Right? And the brother should have been like, amazing. Right? You would have thought the brother would have been waiting to receive his lost brother back from the moment he stepped off of their family farm to the moment that he came back. Right? You would have thought, he would have said, man, I wish, no, above all other things, no matter what it means, I wish I could have my brother back. I want him back in this family. I want him back. Verse 28 says, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been Look at this word. All these years I have been what? Oh, slaving. I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I've been perfectly obedient. I've been following every single rule. Religiously, I am perfect. I have done all the things you've called me to do. And I have stayed here and I've worked my tail off and I have slaved for you and our family. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You didn't do any of this stuff for me. But when a son of yours who has squandered your property and with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Look, when this son of yours, not when my brother comes home, when this person I've been waiting for that, I've, that I lost comes home, when this son of yours comes home who has squandered your property with prostitutes, he could not have said that in any more of an intense way. You kill the fatic. You throw the party for him. And when he came, you should have made him a servant to me and thrown the party for me. Is essentially what he wants. Then the father, who's probably just as broken by hearing his son say that he's been slaving for him, says, "My son, you have always been with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad." Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Verse 28. The older brother... Oh, we finished. And was found. Sorry. So he tells the brother, I want you to have the same heart as I have. I want you to look at lost people the same way that I do. I want you to celebrate every time one of them receives Jesus. I want you to have that heart. I want you to know that should be the heart of every single church who says they want what God wants because this is what God wants. 
He has the 99. They're secure. They're in the pen, right? We know when we start a relationship with Jesus, so we're in a relationship with him. So he's asking us then to take on the same heart that he has. And you know the people sitting there would have known who they were in the story. The lost people, the sinners, the tax collectors would have said, I know I'm the younger son. I know I've walked away. I've made mistakes. I'm lost. I can handle all that stuff. When I was at my lowest point, I've decided to come home. And now Jesus is offering me something, offering me restoration fully back to the place that I need to be. Not because I deserve it or that I've earned it or there's anything that I've done, but because he gave it to me. And then he's calling the religious people who stand outside of that circle, who mutter whenever it feels unfair to them, because grace is the most unfair thing in the world. It's so ridiculously unfair that if you're waiting for it to be fair, you're going to be waiting a very long time because the person who has the most amount to be forgiven will be forgiven the most and the person with the least amount to be forgiven will be forgiven the least and still both of those people need to be fully forgiven before they can have a relationship with God. So great. You are religiously good and God has forgiven you less. That's amazing. Right? Or you gone off the reservation and you've given yourself over to your sin and you found yourself at a low, 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 low point, you're still welcome back and it's never going to be fair and that's okay. But God has called us to see ourselves in the story just the way that they would have seen themselves. The sinners, the tax collectors, and then the religious people would have known they were both part of the story. And the crazy part about this is this story ends with a cliffhanger. So he tells the story and then he sort of challenges the religious people. What are you going to do? Right? Here it is right here. I've got some sinners and some tax collectors here who are seeing themselves in the story and I'm inviting them back into the fold. What are you going to do? And it ends essentially with the father standing in the field with his older son, basically encouraging him, pleading with him, asking him to accept the brother back the way that he has. And he leaves it as a cliffhanger. Because he knew that those religious people, there would be some, there would be some that would understand and they would follow. We know that some of the Pharisees converted and joined the first church. But there would be some who would be obstinate, who would say, this isn't fair and I don't like grace and I can't handle this. And I'm not sure I want them in my church. And I'm not sure I want these people to be part of it. Okay? But the heart of God here, and I think the challenge for us as a church, is to receive back these lost Brothers, sisters, parents, children, friends, co-workers. That when they come home finally, that they'll find a place that throws a party for them. Not that asks them to check off the box of all the Christian behavior. But just says, come on in, get to know Jesus, and we are pumped that you are here. And you know what? We're going to work out all this stuff in your life. We're going to help you figure out what it means to live for Christ. But first... Let's just talk about restoring you back into this community. Let's talk about bringing you in. And let's throw a party when a lost person is found. It's the heart of what we're doing. We have a lot of values. Okay, We really value scripture. It's a high value for us. We want to make sure that we're honoring it. We really value community. We want to make sure that everyone here is known. But man, we also want to be outwardly focused and bringing the lost back into community with God and with us. It's a high, high, high value. So where are you in the story? Right? Are you the religious person who wants to stand back and you're not really sure 
how much you want to rub elbows with people who are a little bit dirtier than you? Are you the lost person who knows I've strayed so far away from where God has called me to be and now I've got to turn and go home and receive this grace that Jesus is offering me? Where are you in this story? And we want to welcome you into this community, but we want you to know we want older brothers who go into the party and who celebrate with everyone because the people who are lost are now found. I'm going to go ahead and pray. We're going to finish with a song. Jesus, would you help us to access the same kind of heart for lost people around us? Would you help us to see them, to relate to them, to care about them, to pray for them, to invite them, to reach out to them the way that you would? God, would you put them on our radar? Would you help us to see the influence we have in their lives, our family members, our co-workers, the people in our neighborhoods, God, that we would invite them into this relationship with you and into this community of people who love them. And God, would we be the kind of church that throws a party whenever a lost person is found? God, we pray that this would be the kind of place where everyone, no matter how far away they are from God, no matter where they are in their journey, would be able to come in and feel comfortable and feel restored and feel part of what's going on, God, and that they would meet you and allow you to do the work. I pray for those brothers who are way, way far away from where you have called them to be, where they know that they are far away from you. I pray that you turn their hearts to come back to receive you. I pray for those of us who are hard-hearted, who don't want to rub elbows with uh, people we think maybe are a little dirtier than us, God. Would you just help us to, to shake that off and to focus on the idea that you called us to reach out to them? And would this be the kind of church that receives those lost people and helps them be found in relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll finish with a song.